Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there is a table of contents at the front. Uh, You'll see two sections, Old Testament and New Testament. Under New Testament, go about six books down or so, and you'll see a book called Romans. Go ahead and turn to the book of Romans. If you are familiar with Scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans 8. Uh, The great reformer Martin Luther said about 500 years ago that Romans was the crown jewel of all scripture, and that Romans 8 was the crown jewel of Romans. So there's no short task. I'm not attempting to teach the entire passage today. That would be bananas. Uh, But it is the text that Paul David Tripp, the writer of the devotional we're going through, addressed today, and so it's the text that fell uh, on, on this day. So when you read a, an extended introduction of a person who is a pastor, and so he's telling you all of his theology, that's what Romans is, a church he's never met, hey, here's all of my theology, you're going to get this long rant. Uh, Renault and I were talking earlier, you know, Paul doesn't know what a period is, only a comma, right? Your 10th grade English teacher would crush this guy. One run-on sentence, and we call it a book of the Bible, right? So... We are going to, this is going to be brutal, and I'll do my best to bring us along. Just the fact that we are starting having skipped seven chapters is already nuts. Uh, The the reason that I tend to push for line-by-line preaching personally is that it it creates a safety net. I could come in right now, if, if I ignored context, and if you guys allowed me to ignore context, I could come at you today and say, God just wants you to be happy and healthy all the time. And I could prove that from pieces of scripture isolated by themselves without context. I could do that. I could tell you that if you're sick and you pray and God doesn't heal you, that you don't have enough faith. I could actually prove that from scripture if you're willing to let me rip stuff out of context. So we're going to to not defame the great name of God. We're going to work hard, even though we're in the middle of a book, to try to not totally mess this up. How's that sound? Not totally messing it up? Okay, we'll do our best. Um, something else, for those of you who are, if you're a guest, you won't know the difference. But for the regulars, you guys know that what we tend to do around here, at least how I was taught to build a sermon, is you find a handful of things that are undeniably true from the text across all cultures, all languages. It doesn't matter if it's 9th century Turkish Christians or 21st century Christians in Northern California. You find the things that are true no matter what. And then you find a way to say them in a way that's remotely simple and memorable. And then you try to find illustrations. Well, guess what? You're in luck. I banged my small brain against a brick wall all week trying to illustrate these points. And I am personally telling you, I struggled. And we're just going to let the word of God stand on its own this week. Because sometimes Paul things, says things in what, such clear argumentation. I'm sitting here going, how do you illustrate that? He just literally said it. He explained it himself. So I usually can get past a block in a few hours of like, how do I illustrate this? How do I illustrate? And all week long, I'm sitting here going, Lord, do I just share these three things with the church family and and it's our job to believe it and obey? Is that just, I don't know. So if Pastor Dennis is over there and he, he, he intercedes and like, Lord, give Greg some illustrations. And if the Lord answers that, maybe we'll go the full minutes long I normally preach. But if there are no illustrations that pop into this small brain, we might have an extended time to socialize with people coming in at second service. I, I, 
It is ridiculous. My notes, this never happens. My notes are the same three lines that you guys have. That never, I usually have triple the amount of content that you guys have. I don't have it. So here goes nothing. Are you ready? Here goes nothing. Today is part four of our Advent series titled The Original Christmas Gift. Uh, Let's be honest here for a second. Christians, we should be honest, right? Authenticity is one of our core values. If you call yourself a Christian and you've been in church any amount of time, who would be willing to be honest and say, I don't think of Romans 8 first when I think of Christmas texts? Right? We might think, if we're familiar, we might think deep theology, but we're not necessarily going to think Christmas. And yet, Paul David Tripp says, we need to go to Romans 8. Huh. So if you've read ahead, you already know where he's going and kind of the thrust of what we're going to be talking about. In order to explain this text, I need to go back to our old friends Pompey, Crassus, and Julius Caesar. Just kidding, I wouldn't do that to you. All right. The text that does not look like it's a Christmas text is, and I'm going to start off, uh, we're going to go in order. The, the linchpin really is verse 34. But note takers, grab your pens. Verses 31 and 32 uh, reveal this to us. Christmas is proof of God's commitment to ransom sinners like you and me. I think here's where I've been struggling, and this is something specifically that I just um, laid before the Lord last night. I really try hard not to sermon prep on a Saturday night, but if if it's not coming to you, I already had this on Wednesday, but I'm like trying to put meat on the bone. I'm like, Lord, why am I struggling with this so much? I think here's, here's what popped into my head last night as I was talking to the Lord. I am always preaching to two groups. Always. People that believe this because their heart has been changed and they fundamentally approach the text from a position of I trust God. And so when there are things that I don't really understand, I am willing to suspend my disbelief for a little while because I find the God who wrote it trustworthy. There's no such thing as a Christian who's read through this and understood it all and not struggled. That's nonsense. The second group is people who approach this with a fundamental distrust of God because their heart has not yet been transformed. And so you're like looking for the parts that are true amidst what you think might be mud or fluff. And where I struggle and what I poured out to the Lord last night is, Lord, I don't know that this chapter makes any sense to somebody unless they've already decided that Jesus Christ was God. And that's kind of fair. It is a Christian pastor writing to a Christian church. So when he says us and we, he's using internal religious language, the church, the people who love Jesus. This whole nothing can separate us from the love of God, and he spends a lot of time on it too. I'm just sitting here going, God, I'm struggling how to preach this to a 21st century American context where we already think we're morally awesome. We already think we're good. The standard religious MO in the U.S. is to compare ourselves against some jerk historical figure and say, if there's a heaven and God grades roughly on a curve, I think I'm going to heaven. Maybe. Sure, why not? I already think I'm a good person, so here's the deal. I am not exulting in the idea that God loves me. When someone tells me God loves me, I'm like, duh. 
chapter 8 is chapter 8 for a reason. Things have been said before this. Easily the two, two and a half least favorite chapters of the Bible start off the book of Romans. And I'm going to simplify it for you if you're not familiar. Romans starts off like this. You're not as cool as you think you are. You are more rebellious and sinful against a holy God than you think you are. It's a good thing Jesus came to save you. Okay? That's how the book starts. A couple of chapters. So it's, it's, it's brutal that he drags you through lots and lots of clear arguments as to how sinful you and I are. It's not just some little tidbit in three sentences like that. So he is writing to Christians, and he has just recently reminded them of how sinful they are to show them how merciful this Savior is. Boy, that gap. Oh, it's such a big gap. And the bigger that gap gets between my sin and Christ's merciful saving of me, you know what, you know what fills in the gap? Praise. If I think I'm pretty awesome and Jesus did this, that's about how much praise I'm going to give God. So he is speaking now to a people that he believes should be full of praise and gratitude for their Savior because he's reminded them how far God has brought them. When you, as a Christian, if you're a Christian and you've been deeply, pervasively reminded of your own sin, maybe you screwed up this week in a big way. And maybe it's something you've done it for the thousandth time after swearing to God 700 times, I'll never do it again. I'll never do that thing again. I'll never say that thing again. And you've done it again. And the enemy uses the opportunity to whisper in your ear that God is not getting the victory in your life. You're not really a Christian. You don't really love Jesus. If you loved Jesus, you wouldn't behave like this. Which is very similar to him saying, if you are the son of God, throw yourself off the top of the temple. As if we owe Satan any proof of anything. We don't. Why? Because when the father looks at a Christian, he sees Jesus Christ, who owed Satan no answer 2,000 years ago, and he owes him no answer now. This chapter is only beautiful if you have been so educated and so reminded of your own sin that you need the preacher to bring you back off the ledge where you're this close to feeling utterly crushed under the weight of the holiness of God. The last time in North America we had a big-time, serious, numbers-shifting, shut-down-parts-of-the-economy revival was the 1730s and the 1740s, which, depending on which historian you read, started with a sermon all about hell. Some of you guys touched on sinners in the hands of an angry God for like two paragraphs in your history class and then, and then moved on. Nowadays, I'm sure it's not in there at all. It was a sermon on hell that led more than 40% of North America to repent and believe in Jesus. And I'm not saying that that sermon was the only thing, but it, it kick-started a lot. And God moved throughout New England, you know, almost 300 years ago. It is good news to hear that nothing can separate you from the love of God. But if you're in a place today where you still think you're morally good, 
this chapter is just going to fall flat. It's going to fall flat. Read verses 31 and 32 again with me. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? Do we have a problem yet? Yeah, we do. We don't know what the wonderful things are. What are the wonderful things? For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them the right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. <laughs> it apparently took multiple complicated God-sized steps to save you from you. Every one of these is big theological terms around which entire books are written. Election, justification, glorification. And he rolls out in two quick sentences all that God did to take sinners and take them from being rebels against God to sons and daughters of God. And it is so glorious that he asks a kind of rhetorical, like what can you even say about things as great as that? giving me right standing with God because he called my name while I was dead and the dead heard his voice somehow? What can you even say about something that beautiful? Paul's losing his mind right now. He's exulting in praise in the middle of writing the letter. He's like, you don't understand how beautiful, how, what could he even say? Well, here's something we can say. If God is for us, who could ever be against us? That is not a contextless coffee cup verse. That is not meant for you to necessarily apply it to your jerk boss. That is not necessarily meant for you to apply it to your circumstances in the moment. What just flowed off his tongue is, if God is your ally, what enemy can possibly take care of you? And the God being your ally specifically is, you were dead and he made you alive. There was right condemnation. You and I, rightly condemned before God for rebelling against him. And he could take sin and Satan and death and crush them. What an ally. That's what he's saying. If God is our ally, how on earth do the enemies barely matter? And, and what's in mind here is ultimate things. If he can make you from dead to life, and we know that he's up at that 30,000 foot level, not just because of what he said, because later he's going to say, I'm confident nothing can separate me from the love of God. Life, death, angels, demons, Republicans, Democrats, like nothing can separate me from the love of God. Greg standard version. Anyway, look it up in the Greek. Um, he is talking about the saving love of God, not just this general, fluffy, God likes everybody, but he loves you so much that his son went to a cross to pay the penalty that you and I should have paid before God. If God will do that, specifically, 
31 and 32. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he, the Father, did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Jesus Christ taking on flesh 2,000 years ago is objective evidence that there is nothing that God won't do for his church. It's just, it's straight logical argumentation. He's basically asking this. Is there anything or anyone that God the Father loves, cherishes more than the Son? That's kind of what he's asking. Because I, I think it would be heresy anyway, but we get into it all the time. We talk about Jesus coming and dying on a cross for his love for us, and, and when we talk about that only... We don't talk about the son's joyful submission to the father's leadership. We often get in this very man-centric theology. I'm pretty awesome, and we go take it so far to say, well, if Jesus died for the church, obviously God loved us more than he loved his son. <laughs> That's my technical theological reading of that idea. <laughs> when you're sovereign, you can have your cake and eat it. He's going to sacrifice his son as a ransom for children that he loves, and he's going to raise his son back. He gets both. That's what happens when you're in charge of being in charge. He's really, really, really in charge. Even Tony Danza is not in charge. A few of you are with me. Nobody watched sitcoms in the late 80s? Anyway, okay. Just the four of us. Anyway, so this is Paul's argumentation. If the Father gave to the church the gift of Jesus Christ, there's nothing else he won't give. That's the point. So I guess here's where I've been struggling a little bit devotionally. When you come up with a theological point and you're the preacher, you're the Bible teacher, it's your job... You have to, you cannot get into the pulpit until the text has worked you over. So I've been going, okay, Lord, what is it that the original audience, what does it mean? What are the ways that we're doubting this? What is it that we think God's holding out on us? You know what I mean? Paul's addressing something. Well, he gave you his son, won't he give you all other things? And, and, and I, I'm going to throw this out there. I, I hope this isn't correct because then it means I'm a filthy sinner. I think it's possible that this text bears weight on every single doubt that I give toward God, period. It's possible that that is just simply that broad. I'm worried about money, worried about the future, worried about something here inside the church family. Like, is there something in my flesh, in my old self, that is just consistently insistent that God's holding out? Because remember, the old self always, always, always distrusts God, sins against God. When the old self is in the driver's seat, God will not, we're not going to do anything to give God's glory. When the spirit-filled, the new self is in the driver's seat, the new self only and ever obeys God. So the reason a Christian can do the right and the wrong is this fight between selves. 
Paul said it this way, oh, what a wretch of a man that I am. I do that which I don't want to do, and I don't do that which I do want to do. He's saying I have two selves. I have two natures. And man, it's going to be great when Jesus comes back and one of those natures dies. It's going to be good. Is it possible that every single doubt of my mind and really of my heart toward God needs to hear this? Greg, I gave you my son. My son. What's this small thing that you're worrying about, right? It's possible that that's what we're supposed to grasp from this. Which means I sin about a thousand times a day. Just in this one category of faith. Do I trust a good, faithful father to be who he is? Or am I going to keep wrestling control back and saying, I ought to be in charge. I ought to be in the driver's seat. I, I don't know. That, that might be it. It seems like he's at that, speaking that broadly. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. So check this out. Who then will condemn the church? No one. For Christ Jesus died for the church and was raised to life for us. He is sitting. Are you ready? Oh, see, we're 21st century Americans. We have no idea what's about to happen. See, we have president. We have vice president. We have Supreme Court. We have Senate. We have the House. We've got governors. We don't have what's about to happen in verse 34. We don't have this. Uh, Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. Past tense, past tense. And... He is sitting, present tense, in the place of honor at God's right hand. All right. Quick bring up to speed if you're new to church. Sitting at the right hand of a monarch, it's a good thing. Your star has risen. Things are going well for you. There is no one higher than you than the one on the throne if you are sitting at the right hand. Okay? And Paul says that Jesus Christ who bled and died for us is right now in the place of the most honor and authority and highest degrees of trust with God the Father as they rule and reign over the universe. And what is Jesus doing? He's leaning, since the Father is apparently on his left, he's leaning against the armrest, against that scar where we put a spear under his ribcage, whispering in the Father's ear over and over again, consistently for the entire church age. Father, I bought them. Yes, she did that, but I paid for it. Yes, Father, he said that, but I paid for that too. And Father, I purchased them with my blood. I purchased them with my blood. They are mine, they are ours. Before he left, Jesus said, The Father put them into my hand, and I have not lost one that was in my hand. Christians that have journeyed with Paul through how terrible we are and how much God has saved us from, 
We're the ones that are ready to hear the good news that our Savior did not simply die once upon, upon a cross once, although Hebrews makes it really clear it was once for all time. The cross was a timeless event. All of your sins were future sins in 30 AD, right? Anybody born before 30 AD? Right here, anybody? No? So your entire life, any sin you've committed was a future sin when Jesus hung on the cross. The God who is big enough to create time is big enough to die for you before you even commit the sin. It's a good thing too. Because this whole, oh, I sinned, I've got to go back and do penance because I just sinned and oh no, and well, do people who commit suicide, do they go to hell because they didn't have a chance to say I'm sorry? Guys, your cross is too small. I don't know what to tell you. Your cross is too small. And I definitely, definitely want you to be free from the pain of thinking that your Christian brother or sister or mother is in hell because they could not take what life was throwing and they ended their life. If they loved Jesus, every sin that they ever committed was forgiven 2,000 years ago. Your family member is not in hell because they couldn't take what was coming their way. The cross is that powerful. It's a good thing. And not only did he die 2,000 years ago, he became worthy to sit at the right hand of the Father. And for as long as the church age lasts, to whisper into the Father's ear, they're mine. They're mine. They're mine. That's good news. That's real good news. And if you love Jesus and you're doing war against sin every single day, it should give you hope and it should give you power in the present to know that this sinless God-man is pleading for you constantly. If you don't think that prayer is doing battle, why on earth would Jesus spend all his time doing it? Right now. Jesus is choosing to do battle through prayer right now. That's good news. That's real good news. So verse 34 tells us that Christmas was how God gave the church an advocate. I don't know how to wrestle with that one. I'm going to have to think about it more. I mean, it seems like although anybody who puts their faith in Jesus crossed to wash away their sins, they are totally redeemed in the moment that they put their faith in him. And yet, we have put our faith in that, still need an advocate. That's interesting to get your mind around. I'm going to have to think about that. If you guys have some insight on that, I'll, I'll take a text or an email to be sure. We have, you already said justified in verse 30. So God already sees his son when he looks at his church. He sees us as sinless. And yet, perhaps that's the relationship. Maybe that's what it is. He sees us as sinless, not simply because he has washed us clean, but he is also currently advocating for us. Interesting. I'll have to think about that some more. In our last blank, this is really important. Christmas means that God loves me even when my circumstances are awful. 
When your granddaughter who's learning how to walk falls and hurts her knee and screams and cries in pain, do you love her less because she fell? What about when your son balls up his fist, punches his brother? Do you love him less? Actually, it's my love for you that drives my fury. Because if you punch somebody else, and I'm just a minimum wage employee watching you for a few hours, I'm like, hey, kids, knock it off. But if you're my boy, I have deep-seated dreams and desires for a healthy, beautiful future for you. And so you making the choice to do that is a really big deal all of a sudden. It is my love for you that gets me to step in and say, oh, heck no, we're not doing that in our family. Correction comes out of love. And as Americans, we just can't wrap our head around that. That a God who loves me would tell me no. So when the doctor tells you, I'm sorry, we don't know how to do anything else, does that mean that God has stopped loving you? Wasn't rhetorical. When your spouse betrays you, does that mean that God has stopped loving you? We have to ask this. One, the text demands it. Because Paul is addressing it. But there's good reason. You and I are so quick to shake our fists at the heaven and say, You don't even love me. If you loved me, this would have happened differently. God, why are you doing this? God, why are you allowing this? We see it all throughout Scripture. We see it throughout human history. We see it in our own lives. We are very quick to point the finger at God and accuse Him of evil, to say that He is anything less than loving. When in fact... We're just going through bad circumstances that pour out of a Genesis 3 rebellion. The ground is cursed. Productivity is cursed. Male-female relationships are cursed. Authoritary relationships are cursed. Um, it was not by accident that Moses chose. It could have been 20 years skipped. Moses shows us in Genesis 3 that we rebel against God. And then he says, um, one brother kills the other. The first two children born of humans, one murders the other. Moses put that there on purpose. Look what you've unleashed. And instead of saying, God, I know I am a part of a broken cosmos, and I know humanity broke it, and I'm grateful for your mercy that you came after us at all. Instead of that gratitude, I turn and accuse him. Instead of thanking him that there was one Christmas day, I'm furiated that there weren't 364 more. We 
Read verses 35 and 36 with me. Can anything separate the church from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? And then he quotes the Old Testament. Psalm 44, I think. As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. Does that sound to you like your best life now? For 18 months, I've spent so much time pressing in on this because I know that if you are a human being, the day of trouble comes. It comes when we least expect it. Suffering doesn't call you and calendar something with you. Most of you who are older than me, you know this far better than I do. And my job is not to make you smile. My job is to prepare you so that when the day of trouble comes, you can stand and say, naked I entered this world, naked I will leave it. God owes me nothing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Will you be ready for that day? If you call yourself a Christian and ARCF is your church home, Citrus Heights is not impressed nor convinced about your behavior when times are good. But you will blow people's minds when you suffer well. Because only something divine could make her respond that way. My sister a couple years ago had the, three years ago now, had the awful privilege of sharing and resharing and communicating the gospel to a friend. They both had been in horrible, awful situations relating to uh, the, the friend had, had lost a baby in childbirth. Um, my sister three years ago was uh, about four months pregnant when she was told there's an infection and your twins have to come out, but they are not big enough to survive the birthing process. My sister was ready for the day of trouble. I don't have words to even guess as to, to try to describe that pain. For all of us to hold a beautiful pair of twin boys that night that were one pound each. And two weeks later, she's talking to a woman who has suffered very similar pain. And that woman's mind was blown. How are you responding like this? ARCF, I want to be clear. You and I being nice to people when times are good, that just shouldn't be that hard. We should not pull a muscle, patting ourselves on the back that we were really kind and loving to people when things were going well. Good for you. 
the scriptures are so clear that Christ has set the bar higher for his church. He said a thousand years before Paul wrote this, as the scriptures say, for we, for your sake, for God's sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. Huh? Why are the people of God slotso? Why are we slaughtered? Well, let's see. Our leader was slotso. Revelation 5. He is worthy to open the scroll because he was the one who was slain before the foundation of the world. And if our leader was treated that way, how much more will the followers be treated the same way? Jesus said that himself. If they'll call me the devil, what are they going to call you guys? Jesus said. I need to prepare you. I do not love you unless I prepare you for the darkest valleys. Does that make sense? I hope I'm not throwing off your Christmas chi. You smile your way through the holidays. Some of us lost loved ones this year and we're not capable of smiling through this holiday. If I love you, I will prepare you for what is real. Not the Hallmark Channel pretend smiles. I want you to have joy when things are good. The Psalms are filled with it. You know what else the Psalms are filled with? Joy when things are awful. 365 day a year joy that cannot be robbed from me based on my circumstances. Things are good, praise his name. Things are awful, praise his name. That's the kind of disciples we're trying to make here. It's the kind of disciple I'm trying to be. You do not need a God who will betray you with something as fickle as a circumstance. That he's no good for you in the dark times. That's a weak God. And it's not the God of the Bible. So this is the context when Paul says, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. The church can suffer for the glory of his name and that doesn't separate us from his love. Neither death nor life. Neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. And again, those earlier verses show us this. If he can call us from death into life, he's already defeated the powers of sin and hell. He's just kind of reminding us there's nothing that can stop you from being loved by God. Not after the cross. There's just nothing no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation. Isn't that a cool little uh, parenthetical? This is Paul's sly way of saying, everything that we're naming that you're worried about is under the sun, to use the Ecclesiastes term. God's up here. All the stuff we're worried about separating us from God's love is down here. Even Satan himself. Angels are created beings. Time, space, Circumstances, everything created by God or allowed by God. And he's saying, all very small compared to the authority of the God who can take the dead and make them alive. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. Not some general fluffy love of God. You could say, I mean, you may remember Touched by an Angel in the early to mid-90s? Remember that show? 
Even when I was 11 years old, that show creeped me out. And I know I'm going to make enemies on this one. Because it bothered me that an angel would show up over and over and over again. Every episode ends the same way. God loves you. And I'm sitting there, this little Baptist boy going, yeah, but which God? I don't know if you're really an angel because you don't talk about Jesus very much. Then after a few seasons, she doesn't talk about Jesus ever. No one in that show ever talked about Jesus. Because God's not as offensive. Jesus is offensive. Jesus is where the sheep and the goats start to get divided. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. That phrase is not offensive. That phrase is fine. Stick it on a coffee cup. Stick it on a bumper sticker. Uh Uh-oh. But that's not what Paul said. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And again, the our and the us, all of this internal language is Christians. He's talking to Christians. Nothing is going to separate you from the love that Christ's cross screamed out to the universe. The manger, the cross, the empty tomb, the ascension, the Holy Spirit being sent, empowering the church to proclaim... Don't tell God he doesn't love you. Now let me flip it on its head. We're running out of time. My short sermons run long. All right. If you're investigating the Christian faith, here's what I need you to pull out of Romans 8. He's spending all this time telling the church that nothing can separate the church from the love that God's already proven in sacrificing his son on a cross. Here's what you need to know. Christianity is the most exclusive, inclusive religion on earth. Jesus says clearly, the rest of the Bible's right clearly, that no one can possibly be reconciled with God, reconnected to him, except by embracing Christ's cross and saying his cross was sufficient. That was the sacrifice that needed to be made because I could not possibly pay for my eternally, the consequences of eternal sin except by eternity in hell. Only an eternal God going to a cross could pay for that. When you and I embrace that cross as our salvation, then that is the only way to be saved. That's the exclusivity of the Christian faith. The inclusivity, you ready? God invites everyone to believe in that bloodied cross. There is no one on earth who is not invited to put their faith in Christ's cross. And when you do all of this, Paul losing his mind in joy and excitement, now it belongs to you. It does not necessarily belong to you yet. But if you find yourself in your own heart believing that Jesus Christ was who he said he was and you never believed it before, congratulations, God just gave you a new heart. You are a Christian today. All the beauty of Romans 8 is only for you if the cross was for you. And you get to decide whether the cross was for you. You get to decide. Is this the way I want my sins dealt with? Or would I like to pay for them myself? That choice is always and totally 
yours. And that is why we will keep begging. We will keep pleading. We will keep talking about heaven and hell. We will keep talking about the best possible life a human being could live is one that's in right relationship with God that only happens through this bloodied cross. Trust him. Trust him. Do not choose to pay for your sins yourself. Don't do that. Don't do that. I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to share one item of family business and we're going to go. God, we've been praying the same thing for the better part of a month. We, we just want you to break through our distracted minds and our cold hearts to allow us to worship you during Advent the way we ought. So Jesus, whether you're revealing your face for the very first time to somebody today or you're showing yourself for the 10,000th time, Make our hearts respond to you, please. God, we want your uh, manger and your perfect life and your cross and your empty tomb. We want those things to be our greatest joy during Christmas. We want the return of the king whenever that happens one day. We want that to be our greatest hope this Christmas. So fight, Holy Spirit. Fight for every inch of our hearts. And gain the victory, please. That our focus be where it ought to be. And I ask you again, by your mercy, Holy Spirit, find some hearts of stone, turn them to hearts of flesh, and allow men and women who are in the room today, kids that are across the quad today, to be transformed by your love and celebrate this Christmas rightly for the first time in their lives. We pray this boldly, believing that it is aligned with your heart and that you'll say yes to our request. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. God's people said, Amen. Amen.